0: You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. Well, good morning, and thank you for being with us in worship. The passage Ellen read this morning from Luke 10, 25 through 35, has sometimes been categorized with what's called the hard sayings of the Bible or the hard sayings of Jesus. And I get that, but I think it's a little bit unfortunate because I really believe what Jesus is doing, especially in this passage, is to give clarity, to help us understand and and define what it means to be a disciple of his. I've titled this morning's message, Defining Discipleship, and I'm curious this morning, are you familiar with the acronym DTR? DTR is a pretty important acronym because it stands for defining the relationship. I think Jesus in Luke 14, 25 through 35, is working hard to define what it means to be a disciple. You know, in human relationships, DTR is really important because if you move from friendship to courting and then to marriage, it's all about that movement, defining the relationship along the way. I'll always remember when Ellen and I DTR'd, I was a lot uh, more interested in Ellen than she was in me. Some of you already know that. But how fun it was at a point in time, around 1989, where Ellen and I defined our relationship and we moved toward marriage. And so think in terms of Jesus defining what it means to be a true disciple. I hope you downloaded your digital worship guide. We do have a sermon outline, and this is really a good message, I think, to take notes because there's some very specific things Christ wants to teach, but also, and equally important, help us apply to our lives. And so, as always, I like to start with the blessing, and the blessing is this, because Jesus clarifies discipleship. Each one of us can evaluate our relationship with him and even our current walk with him today. And so, again, this message is all about clarity. And so, as we walk through these verses, we're going to highlight three things that Jesus wants to be absolutely clear about when it comes to discipleship. And so, clarity number one, the program of discipleship is the same for all. Let me say that again. The program for discipleship is the same for all. If you would, look in your Bible to Luke 14, verse 25. Follow along with me as I read. Now, great crowds were traveling with him, so he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me. You know, this is a time in Jesus' ministry. We're well over two-plus years into his ministry, and basically he had a popularity This isn't the first time we see large crowds, huge gatherings when Jesus showed up. And I think that's wonderful, but at the same time, we get a sense that Jesus is concerned why he's seen this before. For instance, in John chapter 6, one of his first miracles, he feeds 5,000 people with a few loaves and fishes. And then he teaches about the kingdom of God and brings clarity about what it means to be a true disciple. And the Bible says this in John 6, that many of his disciples, mafetes, the technical word for disciples, followed him no longer. And then he turned to his 12 and he said, how about you guys? What are you going to do? And Peter, typically the spokesperson, looks at Jesus and says, Lord, where are we going to go? Who has the words of eternal life? So Peter got it, but Jesus also knew that a lot of people followed him for a lot of different reasons. Some were fans of his until he called for fellowship, for true discipleship. Now I want you to look again at your Bibles, and I want you to notice how inclusive this call for discipleship, this defining discipleship is. Look, if you would, to chapter 14, verse 26. Here's what Jesus says. If anyone comes to me, that's inclusive, folks. Young, old, male, female, teenager, young adult, middle age, regardless of where you're at in stage of life, Jesus says, come to me. If anyone, it's an invitation to be a follower, to be a disciple, how wonderful that is. Now, I have a hunch this morning, if you lined up a 100 Christians and you just asked them, hey, what do you know about discipleship? Is there an entry-level discipleship? Is there an upper-level discipleship? Is there different grades of discipleship? I think the average Christian would probably say yes. That idea was promoted some time ago in a book by author and pastor David Platt, and I deeply respect this man, but he wrote a book called Radical, and it did very well. However, it highlights uh, people's lives who, quote-unquote, bought into this upper-level discipleship and lived radically, went all in for Jesus. When I read the Gospels, if I understand discipleship, which is all-inclusive for everyone, It's the same program that Jesus has for all of us. I would suggest that this is not radical, folks, that this should be normal. This should be the standard for every disciple of Christ. You know, it's interesting. With Jesus, you have no fine print. I love that about Jesus. He is totally honest about what it means to be a true follower of Christ. You know, I think of fine print, I think about Ellen and I, sometimes we uh, we fall for those quote-unquote deals or free vacations. And so every now and then I'll get a call, and the last one we took, uh, we said yes to. It was for five or six nights in Mexico, just a beautiful vacation package. We're going to give you all the amenities, five-star, all-inclusive Food, and it didn't cost very much, about $500. Well, we said yes to that. We signed up. We booked our flights. We were looking at scuba diving adventures, et cetera, et cetera. We had the trip planned out. And about a month and a half before we were ready to go, again, uh, tickets are booked. I get a call from one of the agents in Mexico, and she had a battery of questions for me. But then she found out that I was a vocational pastor. <laughs> and she says, Guess what, sir, Keith? You are disqualified because of your occupation. Didn't you read the fine print? I thought I did, but I guess I didn't. And then I said, Ma'am, we, we've already booked our flights. We're, we're coming. There's nothing we can do. Well, you can still come, but it's $300 a night. Boy, oh boy, how disheartening we were because the fine print spelled out that vocational pastors and missionaries, apparently we don't buy (laughs) timeshares, were disqualified. Here's the deal with Jesus. No fine print. He is absolutely clear. He is defining discipleship. He wants us to know specifically what it looks like, what it means to be in relationship with him. How cool is that? And so as we move through the rest of this passage, we're going to get clarity on what it means to be a true disciple. So clarity number two, <clears throat> the preoccupation of a disciple is total allegiance to Jesus. I love this point, And it flows so beautifully from three allegiances that we're going to see in the next few verses. And these allegiances are just basic to the reality of what it means to follow Christ. And so allegiance number one, and how remarkable that this point starts where the rest of Scripture, all of Scripture starts, the allegiance to a first love relationship with Christ. And friends, when you think about it, Old to New Testament, the first And second great command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And then what will happen from there is love for others will flow out. And so the first allegiance is to a first love relationship. Now look at Luke 14, 25 through 26. So Jesus turned and said to them, again, he's speaking to the crowds. He's speaking to the masses, young and old, male and female, from all walks of life. And he says this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, notice this next phrase, he cannot be my disciple. Now, I hope you realize that Jesus is not using the word hate here in the normal way that we would use it in 21st century American culture. We use hate as more of a a feeling or an action of hostility towards people. Folks, that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not calling us to feel hostile or to truly hate people or act hostile. In fact, that'd be contrary to Scripture. Go all the way back to the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. Paul says to men, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Paul teaches parents to raise their children beautifully in 1 Timothy and in Ephesians 6. Jesus taught us to love our neighbor as ourself. So why is Jesus using such strong terminology? Well, friends, the answer is simple. This is a figure of speech. It is a Hebrew idiom. And literally what Jesus is talking about here, please mark this down, he's talking about comparative love. And so what he's saying is this. He's saying our love should be so great for God, heart, mind, soul, and strength. It should be a first love relationship that he called the church of Ephesus to, that our love is so great, so wonderful, that it looks like all other relationships pale in comparison to that love relationship. What a beautiful point. And maybe I could explain it a little clearer in uh, husband and wife terms. And so in 17 days Ellen and I will be married 31 years. And she is still absolutely the love of my life. But here's the deal folks. When we entered into this covenant love relationship we said yes to each other exclusively. And by saying yes to each other exclusively, a covenant love relationship for life to death do us part, we are saying no to every other relationship. And in comparison, our love for each other looks like we have no other interest in other relationships. Of course we don't, because we're in love. There's no rivals, there's no competition. It's a husband and wife together in this love relationship. That's the picture, folks, and it's such a beautiful picture. Now, it's real interesting that Jesus would use family as the analogy. Why family? And don't miss this point. In the first century, in the ancient world, a culture of honor and shame Family was number one. In other words, you always honored your parents. You could not dishonor them in a culture of honor and shame, or you would be shamed and banished from the community. When an individual got married, it was a family decision. You would never move forward in a marriage relationship without the family, your parents, endorsing it. The family lived together, not only immediate, but extended, and they shared resources. You were raised in a family like a tribe, and it was beautiful. So what does Jesus do? He calls out these number one relationships between husband and wife, between siblings, between parents and children. He calls them out, and he says this. When your love for God is first, Here's what's gonna happen. It will look like, just from outward appearances, that you're uh, disinterested in these other love relationships, but the opposite is true. When your love for God is first love, guess what's gonna happen in every other human relationship? We will love our neighbors as ourselves. We will honor our parents as we're supposed to. Husbands will love their wives as Christ loved the church. Children will respect their parents and have that phileo, brotherly love for each other. Husbands and wives will joy the eros love, the erotic love, the intimacy love. We will have the compassionate love, and it all flows out of this agape love that we have uh, as a first love relationship with God. And so the beautiful thing here is Jesus saying, when you love him first, when you have heart, mind, soul, and strength fixed on God, all other love relationships are blessed. How cool is that? Allegiance number two, allegiance to sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And so I want to draw your attention to verse 27. Look what Jesus says again very honestly, very straightforward. He says this, Whosoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Friends, three times in this passage, Jesus uses this combination, whosoever cannot be. And so he's painting this picture of true discipleship. What is going on here? Well, It's very simple. Have you ever thought that Jesus branded Christianity with a cross? Friends, that is a remarkable thought. Why? Because when you brand something, you know, you're you're marketing it, if you will, right? You want it to be appealing to people. So what does Jesus use? He uses, in the first century, what was used only, as an instrument of torture and death. It's interesting today, a few years ago, I bought a piece of jewelry in Galilee that's my favorite uh, necklace that Ellen wears. It's called the Jerusalem Cross. There's five crosses, one big one with four on each corner. And you go to the holy city today, and there's churches everywhere in old Jerusalem, and the Jerusalem Cross is dominant. It's used as an icon. We wear it as jewelry and we're so comfortable. But back in the first century, I promise you this, there were no crosses for jewelry. You would not see a cross in a place of worship. They were not uh, put on top of buildings to broadcast, broadcast Christianity. Crosses meant one thing. They meant suffering. They meant torture. They meant death. And so what do we learn from this? We learn, folks, and it's so important, that Jesus, again, was truthful. He branded Christianity with the cross. You know, 50 years ago, what does Nike do? Creates the swoosh, and says, just do it, and we still buy into that, that product. What does Apple do? We have for many decades the the simple apple, and today it's the monochrome apple, and it still works. They popularized their product with these cool icons. And Jesus took a place of suffering, a place of torture, a place of death to brand his faith, his movement, and to call his disciples forward to carry their own cross. And so the principle we have to learn today is that you and I, today, right now, have the privilege to share in the sufferings of Christ. If you have your Bibles and you want to flip over to a parallel passage, it's found in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14, it reinforces this point of sharing in the sufferings of Christ very specifically. Follow along with me. Peter wrote, Dear friends, Don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice. Notice this next phrase. As you share in the sufferings of the Messiah, so that you may also rejoice with great joy at the revelation of his glory. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Friends, this is just a reinforcement of other passages of scripture in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5 through 7. Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sakes. They persecuted the prophets, they persecuted Christ. It's true of Christ's followers, we get to share in his sufferings. In Acts, we read that those who enter the kingdom of God will suffer persecution. There will be suffering, and yet it is a privilege to share in the suffering of Christ. Now, it's very clear that everybody's cross-bearing will be different. There is no doubt about it. Friends, we don't live in the first century. Their cross-bearing was hard. It was super hard. I watched a movie a few weeks ago, and it's a movie I highly recommend, Paul, the Apostle of Christ. And it took us back to the mid-60s AD when Nero was emperor. And Nero hated Christians. Half of Rome burned down under Nero. He blamed it on Christians. And as a result, they suffered greatly. The film... Pictures Paul in prison and Luke there with him, ministering to him, caring for him as a physician, but also writing part of the New Testament. Do you realize Luke, when he put Luke and Acts together, wrote most of the New Testament, the majority of it? That's a powerful reality. And that movie depicts what was going on in the mid-60s AD and the martyrdom, the suffering, The sacrifice, the ostracism. Now granted, 2,000 years later, we live in North America, we're not experiencing that kind of persecution. However, I would contend, children, students, you go to school today, you bring your Bible and you read it during break or when you can and you tell your friends you're a Christian, some of those friends, quote unquote, will ridicule you. They'll be hostile to you. They'll persecute you because they just don't like Christ. We have a gal in our life group whose siblings mock her because she's a Christian. We Ellen has a friend who uh, recently came to faith in Christ whose sibling also, um, you know, has given her a hard time because of her faith journey. That's part of the sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Parents, I know how you feel because some of you have seen your kids drift from the church, drift from Christ, and boy, it breaks your heart. That's part of your cross-bearing. If you take on a role of leadership and serving in ministry, I promise you this, there will be times where you're discouraged. There will be times where you're weary and you feel worn out and you just want to quit. That's part of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. As Ellen and I were reflecting on this passage, and we look back at 31 years of marriage and our whole life together has been in ministry. Our greatest burden, our greatest cross-bearing really hasn't been pastoral ministry or mission work. It's been being away from our family for the past 31 years. Ellen's mom has been a widow for 46 years, mine for over 20 years. And to not be with them to support them in this season and stage of life, it's hard. To not have our children and now grandchildren knowing who their grandparents truly are, aunts, uncles, and cousins, that's a little bit part of our cross-bearing. Certainly it doesn't compare to what Christ did at Calvary. Certainly it doesn't compare to what was happening under Nero. But it's stuff we feel today and even our family feels. But we have the privilege, according to Scripture, Because we are in allegiance to Christ to share in his sufferings. And so it begs the question right now. We're here to evaluate our faith journey. Are you sharing in the sufferings of Christ? Are you carrying that cross, as Mark says, Mark 8, daily? Do you look forward to the day of glory when Christ appears? And there will be joy when he says, well done, good and faithful servants. You've shared in the sufferings of Christ. I would contend that's a great privilege. And that's what it means to be a true disciple. Now, allegiance number three: relinquishing ownership of all you have to Jesus. relinquishing ownership to all you have, of all you have to Jesus. Look at verses 28 through 33. And here's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to give two parables real quick. They virtually say the same thing. And then he's going to kind of put a climactic verse, verse 33, that we get to hang our hat on. And so follow along. Jesus says, for which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete the tower? Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to make one of him saying, this man started to build and wasn't able to finish. Or, what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he was able with 10,000 to oppose those who come against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is still afar off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace in the same way, and this is the hard verse, therefore... Every one of you who does not say goodbye to all his possessions cannot be my disciples. Let me start with the two parables. They're very similar, although they have different twists. But they're saying one thing. In the ancient world, if you're going to put up a tower, whether it's in your field to watch over your acreage, your crops from being stolen, whether it's a tower as a part of a city wall to protect the city, if you're going to build a tower, something that important, you first calculate the cost. The analogy today is if you're going to build a home, 200 dollars dollars $400,000, won't you sit down and see if you have enough money to pay the bills and complete the project? And then, of course, boy, if you're going to war against another country, you would just sit down and make sure if you could win the war. Because if you couldn't, boy, there's a high consequence. Lives could be lost. And so Jesus is simply saying this spiritual journey of discipleship, this call from Jesus to follow him is so important, so much more important than building a tower or going to war. Wouldn't it make sense to sit down, to pause, to reflect, to understand what true discipleship is all about? He's defining discipleship. This is DTR, defining the relationship. Now, let's turn to verse 33, what I would call the climactic verse of this passage. In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not say goodbye to all his possessions cannot be my disciple. And so it begs the question, right, right out of the gate, is Jesus saying to be a true disciple of his, we have to sell our cars, our home cash out our 401k, take all of what we have and give it away for the kingdom and glory of God. And of course, you know the answer to that. He is not saying that. But what is he saying here? And we have to take the whole of scripture to understand this. This is Matthew 25, folks. This is Jesus, the great king, giving us his servants, time, treasure, talent, and touch to do one thing to steward these resources for his kingdom and glory. We're not owners, we are managers. And Luke is relentless to bring up finances. That's why he's talking once again about possessions. And so the great truth that we have to learn is, We don't own anything. God owns it all. But according to Matthew 25, Jesus privileges us to be stewards and managers. And when he returns, we want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in managing little, now come into heaven into glory, and you're going to manage much. Now, one of the cool things about this passage is the verb here is in the present tense. And what that simply means is that we constantly have to be evaluating. Are we relinquishing? Are we stewarding? Are we managing well what God has given us? And that's a question, dear friends, that only you can ask and answer. And so the application, the implementation of this is from person to person and from situation situation. You know, as I've reflected on this over the past few years, and I've watched people relinquish, I've watched people steward their lives, time, treasure, talent, and touch. I've seen all kinds of beautiful pictures. A number of years ago, I had a friend who came to faith in Christ, and he had a love for the game of golf. And he said to me one day, Keith, you know what? I'm going to stop golfing for a season so I can put my first love relationship with Christ in focus. Man, that was just such a meaningful idea. Parents, we've seen this ongoing over the years when some of their children get called to uh, the mission field and often overseas. And we watch parents pray through and agonize through letting the kids go, relinquishing them to the Lord and his ministry. Why? Because parents, our children are not our own. We're just stewarding them. They are God's kids. And when that happens, it's beautiful. I'll never forget a gentleman in Mali, West Africa. His name is Esau. He was the first believer in a village known as Blengwa. And we videotaped his testimony and During his testimony, Issa said this, when he came to faith in Christ as the oldest and firstborn, he lost his inheritance in Islam. And the inheritance he was going to get was a cow. Now, we might smile or chuckle, that seems weird, but in an agrarian society in a very poor country like Mali, a cow was everything, and he relinquished that. Why? For his faith in Christ. Recently, I had a friend who's, uh, in-laws passed away, and he came across a large inheritance. Guess what? Everything in life changes, and now he has more money than he ever had. And so what does he call to do? Steward, manage those resources for the kingdom and glory of God. You know, Westwind Church, I saw this happen a couple of years ago here when we did our capital initiative. I saw yielding. I saw surrendering. I saw people say yes. You know, we had a consultant when we went into our capital initiative and he looked at our data, the amount of people in our church, our demographics, our finances, and so forth. And he said, maybe, maybe you could raise 450000 You know what God did in and through you? He allowed you to say yes. And he pledged over $1 million, $400,000 up front. That's the principle here. It's not cashing in everything and giving it all away. It's saying, God, you have blessed me with this. How can I relinquish it at the right time for your kingdom and glory? From person to person, from situation to situation. And what a gift it is to have that kind of allegiance. Now finally, clarity number three. The plan for discipleship is to live influential in Christ. So stick with me here. Look at verses 34 and 35 of Luke 14. Jesus says, now salt is good, but if salt should lose its taste, how will it be made salty? It isn't fit for the soil or for the manure pile. They throw it out. Anyone who has ears to hear should listen. And so here's what we know about salt, and many of you already know this. This is just a reminder Salt is an absolutely stable substance. Sodium chloride. Salt is always salty. That's just a fact. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, it's real simple. Salt can be diluted and made less potent with other substances. And so it's diluted and it becomes uh, less salty. Technically, it's called leaching out, where salt no longer has the potency it once had or the flavor it once could have, could have had. And so, what is Jesus teaching here? He says, As disciples, here's God's goal. It's Matthew chapter 5, it's the Beatitudes again. You are the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth. He wants us to live influentially. But when we don't embrace these truths about discipleship, they dilute the salt of our life, they allow the light of our life to go dim, and we become less influential. And so think about it. He's calling us to a first love relationship. And boy, if we have other rivals, if we have other loves, if Christ is in our first love, our salt gets diluted. If he calls us to cross to sharing in the sufferings of Christ and we say no we're ashamed of the gospel we don't take students our bible to school why because we might be ridiculed we don't go into the marketplace into the workforce testifying that we're in Christ because we're concerned what our coworkers or boss will think we don't take those challenges and relinquishing our kids to kingdom work and the list goes on and on it dilutes our salt it leeches out and we become less salty And then finally, if we hold on to our possessions, if we live greedily, stingily, and not as good stewards, not as managers of all God has given us, we dilute our salt and become less influential. And so the goal of discipleship, God's plan for everyone is this, to be salt, to be light, to be an influence for his kingdom and glory. And that's quite a privilege that we have. And so you think through this passage, it's so clarifying. Jesus defines discipleship. The program is the same for all. No hidden agenda. No fine print. Thank you, Lord. We're called to allegiance Allegiance that starts with love that impacts every other relationship. Allegiance that allows us to suffer, to look forward to the joy to come like Jesus did, Hebrews 12. And allegiance to take all we have, our possessions, and say, Lord, they're yours. You're the owner. I'm just a steward and a manager. Help me. Give me wisdom to relinquish, to be generous with our time, treasure, talent, and touch. And then in the end, dear friends, all the life you and I get to live, a life of influence, letting our light shine so that people will see our good works, our life of discipleship, and bring glory to our Father in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these beautiful, clarifying words. And Lord, we have the privilege today, right now, to evaluate our relationship with you and our current walk with you. And I pray these truths would sink in, Lord. Start with me, transform me. We want to be known as true disciples who are salty, who are influential, who bring your light to a world that so desperately needs it. Thank you, Father, through Jesus, that we can Not only hear these truths, but apply them to our lives. Give us ears to hear, hearts to respond, and a will to say yes. We pray in the powerful name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.